All right, wasn't sure when that was over. So, uh, <laughs> all right, good to have you in God's house today. We are so glad to have you here with us. Thank you, praise team. Thank you for those songs. What a beautiful, beautiful message and song today. Take your Bibles, if you will, this morning to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We're going to continue our series in the book of Mark. Join the journey, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, looking at what it means to be a disciple of Christ and what you will, in fact, face uh, the words I'm going to give you today, the, the, the verses I'm going to be preaching on today, to me, are very weighty. They're weighty verses, and so I want to do everything I can to represent them well. I've been thinking this won't be a typical message that I preach today, but it'll be something that I just want to challenge your hearts on. Mark chapter 8, I'm going to read verses uh, 34 uh, to 38. Stand with me now as we read God's Word. Mark 4, verse 34 to 38. It says, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, if any wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You may be seated. I want to talk to you about the, the title of the message today is The Value of One Soul. I've been thinking about all week the value of one soul and how Jesus puts it here so succinctly when he talks about it. The value of one soul. Now before I get into that message, uh, I want to give you this outline. I'm going to use this outline through the whole message. There's three things you never want to lose. There are three things you never want to lose in your life, okay? And so we'll talk about those three things in just a moment. Now, physically, you may never want to lose your driver's license. You may never want to lose your phone because now we pay over a thousand bucks for our phone today. You may never want to lose a family keepsake. And if you're a woman, you may never want to lose your diamond ring. There's some things physically you just don't want to lose in this life. Emotionally, there's things you don't want to lose as well. You don't want to lose your temper. That's a good thing not to lose. You don't want to lose your friends. You have some friends you don't want to lose. You don't want to lose your dignity. It's so easy to lose your dignity in things, and so no one wants to lose their dignity. I was talking to my grandson this week, and uh, he got this book at the library with his uh, mom, and it was called Amazing and Unusual Facts of Sports, about that thick. And uh, he was talking to me about some of these facts in the book. He was really excited about it. He read this one fact. He said, Papa, did you know that the odds of getting hit at a professional baseball game are 1 in 300,000? I said, no, I didn't know that. But that means if I go to 299,999 games, that means if I go to the next game, that means I'll get hit by a baseball? He looked at me for a minute. He said, that's right. <laughs> that's right. You'll get hit. <laughs> And he showed me the story, the most unusual story of the odds of it ever happening. Richie Ashburn, Giants were playing the Phillies in Philadelphia. And Richie hit a foul ball, and it went back into the stands right there along the third baseline. And when it did, there was two grandkids and one grandma sitting there at the game. Her name was Alice Roth. 
and the ball landed exactly on her nose and broke her nose. They laid her out. They brought the medics. They stopped the whole ball game. Stopped the whole ball game for it. And the medics came out. They treated her. They put her in a stretcher. And they were going to carry her away. And they began to carry her away. Well, they stopped the whole ball game. And they resumed the ball game. And she's being carried away in a stretcher. And he hits another foul ball. This time it lands on her knee and breaks her leg. What are the odds? Of that happening, you'd have to figure that up. It's one in 3,000 to get hit once, but twice in a ball game. It's the only one in history that has ever been hit in a baseball game more than one time professionally. Richie felt so bad, he bought some flowers. He took it to her and her husband at the hospital for Alice, and they became quite good friends after that. He told her, I want you to come back to a ball game, and I'll pay tickets for you and your grandsons. And I feel really bad about it. So they came back to a game, and she said, but I'm sitting in left field. I'm sitting in left field. And uh, the two grandboys, they went with her to the game, and they were so excited. They took them on a tour of the dugout. They gave them signed baseballs. They uh, took them into the locker room to show them where the guys hang out in the locker room. And they thought it was the thrill of their life to have that happen for them. One of the grandboys went up to his grandmother and said, Grandma, could we go to an Eagles game and possibly could you get hit in the face by a football? <laughs> oh, that's great. That's a great story. Anyways, you lose your dignity pretty fast if that's happened to you in your lifetime. But I want to talk to you today very seriously. I know I went lighthearted there, but I'm going to go very seriously from here because this is weighs on me as I've been thinking about this. There are three things you never want to lose. Three things you never want to lose. Number one, you never want to lose your life. You never want to lose your life. The Bible says in verse 35, well, let's start in verse 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whosoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. That's, that's some weighty stuff right there. Let me kind of break down the structure of that. This is Christ's invitation to follow him. It's the middle or the center of the book. In his invitation, he's saying, this isn't just uh, ask God to forgive me of my sin and everything's going to be okay. It's not that kind of invitation. It's a life of following Jesus. And the first thing he's saying is, to them is you don't want to lose your life. And so he breaks down the structure to say, there are three things, three ways to follow me. There they are in verse 34. Number one, deny yourself. Number two, pick up your cross. And number three, follow me. Now, let me start with number two because he talks more about number one uh, in the next verse. But why talk about a cross when he hasn't, he hasn't even faced a cross yet? He's telling them to pick up his cross, and he hasn't even taken his cross. It's because he knows and is guaranteed that he must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and be raised the third day. So he knows he's going to a cross, and now he's telling his followers, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross. Now, that would have been kind of shocking to them because to follow Jesus by taking up a cross, every Jew knew what he was saying. That in the bondage of Rome, they were aware of the symbolic significance of the word cross. It's the chief means of execution by crucifixion. It was the one of most, they figured out 
Crucifixions go back thousands of years before this, but they figured out the way to make it the most painful and to keep a person alive for an extent of time so the pain was excruciating. That's what the word crucifix means. Excrucis is Latin, out of suffering or out of extreme pain. And so they figured out how to keep people alive. It's worse than what we do today. We're very humane. If you want to take someone's life, you'll do it by lethal injection. We used to do it by the electric chair or fire squads or beheadings. All those types of ways have been ways of execution for governments. And theirs was the most cruel way. It took place in every capital of every province in Rome and everything under Rome's authority. Every capital had one of these. The convicted person was required to carry a crossbeam. Now, typically, you see Jesus with two pieces of wood. That's not how it worked. It was just the crossbeam. He would have just taken the crossbeam with him. That alone weighed 150 to 250 pounds. And so that was a very heavy instrument, but you were required to carry that crossbeam from your judgment seat, where you got judged, all the way to your place of execution. The... the main beam was already in the ground. They would pull that up, they would crucify you to it, and then they would slide you in the hole, and you would stand, uh, be uh, crucified there until you died. Now, Jesus would be required to do that at the time of his death, so they all knew this idea. Now, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, just get this, okay? If you want to follow me, uh, you're going to have to pick up your cross, you're going to have to pick up your cross, and you're going to have to carry that for me, and you're going to have to carry it every day of your life. It's going to be a symbol of shame. It's going to be a symbol of death, and it would be like a sign on your chest, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the weight of that statement, and that's what's required to be a Christian. Now, the grand paradox is that in order to save your life, so you don't want to lose your life. In order to save it, you have to lose it. Okay, and that's, that's the grand paradox. And that verse is a very confusing verse, but basically it means this. Your preoccupation in life is not to deny yourself, but to save yourself. See, that's, that's your self inside of you. If I could just use those words and say, your self says, I don't want to deny myself. I want to save myself. I want to save myself. But Jesus says your attempt to save yourself will cause your own self to be destroyed. The Christian life, don't forget this. If you forget everything else, don't forget this. The Christian life is a throwaway life, which is very hard for us to kind of grasp, but the idea is our destiny as the people of God is to be thrown in the garbage cans of this world and to be rejected by this world, and to be put off. And there's no way to glamorize that. That's why he uses the most horrific symbol, a crucifix. Because he wants you to get this, that there has to be this dying to self in your life. There's going to be affliction, there's going to be rejection, there's even going to be death. Because when you live in a world that doesn't have a standard for right and wrong, and Jesus comes along in his words and says there is a standard for right and wrong, you're immediately going to be ostracized, rejected, or criticized, or mocked for that belief system. Somewhere, somehow in your life. And Jesus is going to say, now, hey, do you want to find your life? Lose it. In other words, deny yourself. 
Now that is an incredibly intense calling upon our life. And Jesus is basically saying, count the cost if you want to follow me. Deny yourself. The, the self in you doesn't like this. You want me to be opposed? You want me to be shamed? You want me to suffer? Self doesn't want to die to anything. The self in you doesn't want to die to anything. But self-denial says, no, Mr. Self, if I could put it that way, I know you don't like these things, but I'm saying no to you. The new self says, I want Jesus more than I want to be free from opposition. I want Jesus more than running away from suffering. I want Jesus more than a shame-free life. I choose life. That's what the new self in you says. I choose life. I choose eternity. I, I want that. I, I, I'm not going to give in to that temptation. I'm not going to go down that path. I don't have to have satisfaction now. See, everything inside you screams, what are you doing? You're crucifying every desire and satisfaction in you, and you're putting it at the feet of Christ saying, God, I want my new self to reign. I want my new self. What a battle you're in with yourself. And then you're in a battle with the world. It's, 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 like, a, it's like an unending call that when you say, I'm going to follow you, Lord, that's the difficulty you have. And so the new self says, I'm going to battle those things. I'm going to battle. That, that's what it means to follow Jesus Christ. I'm going to battle those things that are in myself, my, myself that's fighting and saying, you want this, this satisfaction, you want to choose this, act this way, say this, do that. And then I'm going to fight the world that says, don't tell me there's a standard of right and wrong. Don't tell me that. And you're going to have to stand up to that. And so that brings, if you will, a crucifix. So that's number one. You, you don't want to lose your life. You don't want to lose your life. Number two, let me go on. I want to get into this one a little more because I, my heart was here the most. Number two is you don't want to lose your soul. You don't want to lose your soul. What does he say there in verse... 36, what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit or lose his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's, that's weighty too. You never want to lose your soul. Now, if you look at this, these verses here, these are business terms. Profit, loss, all you can relate to that. Profit, loss, on the one side is the assets, on the other side are the liabilities. Okay. On the one side are the accounts receivable, on the other side are the accounts payable. That's what he's saying, profit, loss. What shall it profit a man? What shall he give in exchange for his soul? The loss of his soul. So in these terms then, in their day, it would it sound something like this. On the profit side, I've got some cash, I've got some cattle, I've got some chariots, and I've got some land. How much land do I have? I have the whole world and everything in it. I have the whole world and everything in it. And the only item on the lost side is your soul. Okay, now think about that for a minute, okay? The lost side in red ink is the expense of your soul. Okay, so from the Lord's perspective, if everything on the prophet's side contains the whole world, and the only thing on the law side is your soul. You are bankrupt. You are bankrupt. You have lost everything. 
Because what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? See, that's, that's why he's saying the weight of this. I, I've never seen anybody say it like this because it's so intense to think about. The worst transaction a human being can ever engage in is if someone would sell their soul. And you can sell your soul. There are fictional tales that we know through time where people have sold their soul to the devil. And some of those are based on true stories. Some of those are based on true events where people have realized, my soul's worth something and I can get something for it. And they sell their soul. Now, after death, you, you cannot buy a soul out of, out of hell. After death, you can't buy it out of, out of hell. It's done. And if you sell it in this life and you die, you can never buy it out of hell. That's, that's weighty. That's, that's what he's trying to tell you here. Okay. Now, what about before death? Before death, you still have some options. And the only option I know of from the Word of God is to put yourself under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I, I'm claiming the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for the saving of my soul. That's the only option you got while you're alive. And so that's it. That's, that's the weight of this passage. And um, why is that so weighty to me? I, I, I've looked at it from a different angle, well, different angles, and, and just some of my thoughts are this. One of the reasons it's so weighty is because your soul is of infinite worth. It's hard to fathom that because you can't touch your soul, you can't see your soul, but it's of infinite worth. This verse infers that your soul is worth more than the whole wide world. If you had the whole wide world and everything in it, you could not buy a soul for it. You could not buy a soul, which then implies your soul is worth more than that. In other words, it's worth more than all the oceans, all the mountains, all the seas, all the continents, all the silver, all the gold, all the rubies, all the diamonds, and everything in the world, your soul is worth more than that. Now, just let that sink into your heart for just a minute. It wouldn't be enough to buy your soul. Now, the Bible teaches in 2 Corinthians 5, 1, it teaches we are a soul and we live in a body. But the thing about your soul is your soul will be in existence far longer that when all the sun, moon, and stars have grown cold, your soul will still be going. Because it's of infinite worth. That's an incredible thought. Your soul is of infinite worth because it's made in the image of God. When God made you, he stamped his image on you. And he said, you have my dignity in you. Now, it may be marred because we're fallen, but you still have this dignity because you're made in the image of God and your soul could no longer cease to exist, then God himself could cease to exist. That's how powerful this passage really is. And so your soul goes on endless, timeless, dateless, measureless. It goes on and on and on throughout all of eternity. And your soul will forever abide in one place, heaven or hell. That wasn't my idea. That wasn't even my words. Those are Jesus' words. You know, Jesus spoke more about heaven and hell than any other person in the whole Bible, which is absolutely amazing to me that somehow that could be missed by people. But he speaks of hell more than anyone else. Why? Because he's telling you, your soul is of infinite worth. There's no kind of burning out of existence in hell. It is eternal. 
It is eternal. That's the teaching of the Scripture. Why? Why is it eternal? Because who made you? God made you. God made you, and He is the master artist. And He is, as the master artist, you are a work of art. Man, I wish I could get that into your spirit and into your soul. You are a work of art. I was looking at some famous art paintings this week. I looked at um, Van Gogh. Van Gogh's painting went for over $100 million in not too long ago. $100 million bucks for that drawing. I think I could get close to that, okay? I could get close to that with a canvas and some oils, but I probably couldn't get that money for that. I, I looked at some Picassos. I'm not even going to put Picasso on there. There's some weird stuff with that guy. I easily could paint his drawings. But I'm not going to get over, he gets over 100, he got over 100 million dollars for two of his paintings. And I cannot believe people paid that. They say the rarest painting in the world, the rarest painting in the world is Raphael's Madonna. They don't have a price tag on it, people try to value it, but they don't have a price tag on it because it's not for sale, it sits in the Sistine Chapel. And so therefore, there is such innumerable worth to that or uh, something that we could not uh, really appraise, but it is a priceless painting. Now, if you look at that and you just realize uh, one of the most priceless paintings in the world by most artists, all it is is canvas and oil. That's all it is. But what makes it so valuable is the master behind it who painted it. That's why it's so valuable. Raphael painted that. And so the value of it is the one who made it. God created you and made you with a soul. That won't go on forever, but you will go on forever in your soul. That is of infinite worth. Here's a great book to read sometimes called Acres of Diamonds. They did this story where this man lived in North Africa and he saw all these people coming to North Africa and going to mine for diamonds and many of them were becoming millionaires. So he decided to sell his farm and his property and he sold his property and he was going to go off and he was going to go diamond mine hunting. He went for months and months and months, and he got totally discouraged. He didn't find any diamonds and was totally discouraged, and so he threw himself in the river, and he drowned. Another farmer bought his piece of property, was crossing a riverbed, and he looked down, and he saw something shiny in the riverbed of his land that the other guy killed himself, that used to own it. He picked it up, and it was one of the world's largest diamonds. And he didn't know it at the time, but he was sitting on a diamond mine that another man went and searched all the world for diamonds, and it was sitting in his own backyard. That's, that's that book by Russell Conwell, and it's, it's a beautiful book, and I wanted you to hear that. And so what I took from that is this. Your soul is that diamond you just get that just get that in your heart right now your soul is that diamond you don't need to look somewhere else for value you don't need to tell someone else to tell you you're worth something because you're going to spend your life trying to do that 
Somebody's got to tell me I'm worth it. Somebody has to tell me I'm valuable. What God is saying is you already have it. Don't you see? You already have it and you are it. You are it. I put a soul in you. You are a soul. And you are standing in the middle of acres of diamonds. You are an original. No one in your soul, no one's soul has been made like your soul. And if you were the only soul in existence, Jesus Christ would have died for you. That's, that's an amazing, amazing thing. And understand this. This is, this is what gets me as I think about this. I know I'm kind of going in a different kind of way in a sermon here, but I want you to get this. This is amazing to me that God desires your soul. He desires your soul. It's the most valuable and precious thing to him in this life. Now, how do you determine the value of something? Well, you can get an appraiser, and you can have them appraise your real estate, or you can get an appraiser and have them appraise your pro, uh, the object that you have, and they'll put a price tag on it. But if you ask any uh, uh, appraiser, what is the true value? They say the true value isn't my appraisal. The true value is what somebody's willing to pay for it. That's the true value of something. What is someone willing to pay for it? Now, what was Jesus... And the Father and the Holy Spirit willing to pay for you. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold after your empty lifestyles according to the traditions of your fathers. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb without spot and blemish. That was the only thing that could pay for your soul. That's the value. That's the value of your soul. Just, just let that sink in. That's just an amazing thing to me. So what does that mean to me as I, I share that with you? Climb up to heaven and put your ear on the heart of the Father and hear his heartbeat for the love of your soul. Then climb down back to the slopes of Calvary where Jesus Christ's arms were shed on a hellish cross and the price he paid for you with his own blood. And then go further still, I believe this, go down into hell and see the hell that Jesus took for you and paid for you when he went into the uttermost parts of the earth and he walked the quarters of the damned and paid your price in hell for you. That's... That's how valuable your soul is to him. Just, just try to fathom that, all right? Now, think about this for a minute because when, when I think about that, how many have sold their soul, hey, they have sold their soul to get the whole world. They took something far more valuable and they sold the soul for the whole world. How many have tried it? Alexander the Great tried it. Napoleon tried it, Hitler tried it, Karl Marx tried it. They sold their soul in order to get the whole world. But the whole world couldn't even buy their soul, but they were willing to sell the most valuable thing they had for the world. I was reading in Charlemagne this week, the king of France. Now, that wasn't just the king of France as we would think of France today. Back then, that was the, 
the, the Western Europe where he tried to come back and take over Rome again after Rome had fallen. He came back and he was able to take at least a good portion of Western Europe and that was called France at that time. And so Charlemagne was the king of France in the 8th century. Well, pomp and circumstances, if you ever read of his life. And when they buried him, they put him in a vault. They didn't put him in a coffin. And so hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, uh, archaeologists found his vault. And they wanted to go in and find out what was in his vault. And so they went down into the ground and they found the vault under the ground. And when they went in there, they were amazed. The first thing, there was treasures everywhere. There was gold and there was silver and there were ornaments and there was all types of things there. But there was no coffin for the king of France, Charlemagne. The only thing there was is that what they did is when Charlemagne died, they sat his body on a throne. They put his left hand on the armchair of that throne. They had a crown on his head, but hundreds and hundreds of years later, that crown fell over his skull, and it was grotesque. And his right bony finger was on the Word of God, which was on his lap. And it was pointed to this very verse that I just read. What shall a man profit if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And that's where his bony finger was, right on that verse when they found him. <laughs> that's an amazing thing. You think about that. He didn't gain it. He couldn't keep it. He couldn't keep it. How rich are you? Someone has said it this way. Add up everything that you have and that death can't take away, and that's how rich you are. Add up everything you have and death can't take away, and that's how rich you are. That's, that's weighty. That's weighty, and that's, that's what to say. To lose your soul is an immeasurable loss. You can lose your car, you can get another car. You can lose your tooth, the, the dentist can get you another tooth. It's amazing the things you can lose today that are replaceable, but you can't replace your soul. I was reading the story this week about a young bride for first meal home. The man was coming home for the first meal in their, in their marriage together, and so she decided to cook a really wonderful meal for him. She got the whole meal ready. She made biscuits for him. She was all excited. She put the biscuits on the table, and just about five minutes before her husband came home, the dog crawled up on the table and ate all of the biscuits. Oh, she was so upset, and she started to cry, and he walked in the door. He said, what you crying for, honey? He said, the dog crawled up on the table and ate all of the biscuits I had made for you for the first dinner we were going to eat together. He said, honey, don't cry. We get you a new dog. <laughs> I like that story. I had to tell it, all right? Some things can be replaced, but you cannot replace your soul. You say, well, God will give me another chance. No, no. It is appointed that a man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. There is no second chance. This, this is the day of grace. When the day of grace is gone, there is no second chance. That's why it's so important you understand the value of your soul. That's why I feel this passage so much in my spirit right now, because of that, the weight of that truth. I had a fellow call me this week, and uh, here's the first thing he said to me. I mean, he hardly even knew me. He said, um... He said, uh, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. 
So I just decided to cut right to the chase. I said, do you want to be saved? He said, yes, I do. I said, well, then you didn't commit the unpardonable sin. Because if you committed the unpardonable sin, you wouldn't want to be saved. You'd so harden your heart and harden your heart and harden your heart that you couldn't believe. But if you want to believe right now, I promise you, under the authority of God's word, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. So it's wonderful to know that whoever you are, if you want to be saved, you can be saved. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing and truth to understand that whosoever will may come. All right? So you don't want to lose two things. You don't want to lose your life. Number two, you don't want to lose your soul. And number three, you don't want to lose your testimony. You don't want to lose your testimony. He says in verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, the key word there in this verse is shame. Shame. He's saying, are you ashamed of Christ and his words? Not just some of his words. He's talking about the whole word of God because he is the word of God incarnate. He is all of this put into words. This is Jesus Christ in words. And so he's saying, are you ashamed of me and my words? That's so important because you're living in a generation where there's, a, there's no right and wrong, and so you're trying to stand up and say there is a right and wrong. You're trying to stand up and say, taking the whole word of God, there's only a male and there's only a female. There's only two genders. But your culture is saying, no, that's not right. There's more genders than that. That's so out of vogue. That's so wrong. And so, see, you're having to stand up for the very word of God that you hold. And that, that's the battle you got today. That's why the fight for life, I'm so into the fight for life because the fight for life says a soul is not valuable. And in that womb, there's a soul. There's a soul and it's more valuable than any of that. And so they put no value on life. And you've got to fight that because you know you've got to stand up for that because you're in a culture that says, hey, this is what's true. Because this is what we think and feel is true. And so you're, you're in that battle and Jesus said, don't be ashamed of any of my words. You just hold on to them. You believe them. You stand up for them. Because some of you are going to be in places, you know you're going to be in schools and places that you have to go in your business where it is a constant battle going to be thrown in your face. You just stand up for me. That's what he's saying. Don't be ashamed of me and my words. Okay? Because there is coming a day where then I won't be ashamed of you before my Father. That's... That's really to be an encouraging thing to you, all right? Okay, so how do I just make this simple? I don't want to make this too heavy for you, but I want you to be simple. Is there anybody you know that doesn't know you're a Christian? Okay, that's, that's a good question. Okay, is there a friend or a coworker, or a leisure friend, a sport friend, whatever it is? Do they know you're a Christian? If not, why not? Why not? I'll tell you why not. I thought about this myself. The world hates us. And nobody wants to be hated. And nobody wants to be embarrassed. Nobody wants to be embarrassed. We all have a deeply rooted desire to never be embarrassed or never be ashamed. We all wrestle with that. And that's one thing that keeps us sometimes from representing 
what our true feelings are. So what we do sometimes is we hide our true feelings with people that we don't know if we're going to be embarrassed, rejected, or ashamed by. Or we can be ashamed in such a way that uh, we say, this is not really who I am, but really it is who you are. And so I'm saying to you, we have a devotion to Christ, and the world wants to attack that devotion. And you're going to get attacked for that. I'm just telling you, stand strong. Say, I'm not ashamed of his words. I am not ashamed of his book, and I'm not ashamed of him. There have been times in my life, and I'm, I'm not perfect. There's times I was ashamed. There's times I've actually driven to things, did not stand up for Christ, on the way home was so convicted, I drove back to tell the person about Jesus Christ. Just That's kind of extreme. I'm, I don't do that all the time, but, but I'm just telling you, it works in me too. And I, I want to know, I want the Lord to know I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of his words, and I'm not ashamed of him. All right, I'm going to close with this illustration. I'm done. There's a, name, a man named Moritz Ketch. He was a chess player, but he was also a painter. And he painted this incredible painting to represent an idea. Now, chess is an interesting game. The goal is to checkmate your opponent. And so, as a professional chess player and also as a painter, at the end of the 19th century, he painted this painting of a young man who is playing chess with the devil. And the young man is moving the white pieces and the devil is moving the dark pieces. The stakes are high. The young man is playing for his soul. Now, you need to understand this about chess. If you're a really good chess player, like a master chess player, you can make a move and you can say something like this, in four moves, checkmate. That's what a really good chess player can do. They can predict the next four moves. This person, it's impossible for them to win, and they will be checkmated in four moves, and you cannot escape. In this painting, the pieces are arranged on the board in such a way that Satan has just moved his queen, and he has announced to the man, to the young man there, he announces to him, four moves, checkmate, and you cannot escape. The man has a look of despair. His soul is in the balance. He's trembling his hand over the rook. He knows he's been beaten. He has played the devil at his game and he's lost. Now, that painting at the end of the 19th century was hung in New York City in a famous gallery for decades. And at that time, Paul Morphy was a master chess player, and he lived in Louisiana. And they went to Paul Morphy, and they said, hey, have you seen that famous chess drawing, that painting of the devil and the young man? And uh, he says, no, but I would really enjoy looking at that. He said, we'd like you to come up here, and we'd like you to look at that painting, and we'd like you to tell us, is there any move that young man could have made to beat the devil? And so they brought Paul Morphy up, and they brought him into the museum, into the art gallery there, and he sat down on a bench before the painting, and he began to stare at the board. He stared at it for 10 minutes, and then he stared at it for 20 minutes. 
And in his mind, he was moving the pieces around about how he could do it. And after an hour of staring at the painting, he broke his silence in the museum with a loud voice, and he says, Young man, make that move. He had figured out a move that the artist of the painting did not see. Now, I don't know enough about Jess to tell you what that move is, and I don't even think you'd understand it anyways, but the truth of the matter is, I know there's one move you can make. You can make one move that says, Jesus, I need you. I need to be saved. That's one move you can make. And if you're here today, and you have never received the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, don't lose your life, don't lose your soul, and don't lose your testimony. And I would say to every young man, every young woman, every sir, every madam here, make that move. Make that move with your life. Let's pray. Praise team is going to sing our closing song. As they come to sing this, I'm going to speak first to my people. I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands. I just want you to think for a minute that as you go out of here today, I want you to have a spirit about you that says, Jesus, I don't want you to ever be ashamed of me. And I don't want to ever be ashamed of you. And I don't want to be ashamed of your words. You will face ridicule for that. You'll face rejection. But I want to challenge you as the people of God to go out and say, God, I want to be proud of you wherever I am. And I want people to know that I know you. That's how I want you to go out of here today. Representing him. You may be here today, though, and you've never made a move for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you would say, Lord Jesus, I need you. Save me. Come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin. If that's your prayer, I do want to ask you, would you, would you lift up your hand right now? Just raise it up so that I could see it and say, that, that's, that's my prayer. I need to pray that prayer. Yes, I see that hand. Is there another one? Just hold it up for a second. Yes, I see that hand. Yes, over here, I see that hand. Yes, I see that hand in the back. Is there another? Just hold it up just for a minute as I'm looking around. Yes, all four hands. I just want you to pray this prayer right now at your seat. You who raised your hands. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I know there's nothing I can do to save myself. And my soul is worth all, of, all and more of this world. Jesus, save me. I need you. Forgive me of my sin. You died on a cross as my substitute. I put my faith and trust in you as my Lord and as my Savior. Now, friend, if you prayed that prayer, your hand went up, and you're serious about that, let us know. 
You can take one of those cards in the front. You can fill that out and drop it off on the way out, or you can just come see me. But let us know that you've come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We want to help you to grow and know what it means to follow him. Father, I pray you take this time now. I thank you for your precious word. I thank you for the precious souls in here that you died to save. I ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Praise team is going to lead us now in this song.